I need support staff to clear the room. Stand up and walk now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I'm an editor at TheRinger.com and joining me in the studio, he's got temptation eyes. Teddy Greenwald! Hey, pal. Boy, it's been a long day of podcasting for you and I. We just recorded a uh, great podcast that you're about to hear with the author of the new Jan Wenner biography, Sticky Fingers. His name is Joe Hagen. Yep. He is a really interesting character, a great, great chatter, great talker. We did not talk about the other big news, which was me learning literally moments ago that the villain in Justice League, which opens tonight, is called Steppenwolf. <laughs> <laughs> and is a CGI Viking god who is voiced by Kieran Hines. Uh, we will be talking about Justice League Monday in some capacity. I have a feeling yeah. that things are not going well for this franchise. Did you know that his name was Steppenwolf? Does, as I was, oh, I, you know, we just we've been potting all day for various things. But yeah. as I went back to my office to check online, I yeah. saw that there was a controversy brewing because someone tweeted like this. I think Joanna Robinson yeah. from Vanity Fair tweeted that like the villain sucked in Justice League. Yeah. And Joss Whedon liked the tweet. And then all these other what? like JLA heads lost their minds and were like, I see you, Josh, and you Whoa. will not be forgiven for the crimes against the Justice League. Wow. That's so, the voice like, so Joss is a, an apocalypse head? Like, I guess. Look, I don't know, man. The main takeaway, and here we are, here we go again. But the main takeaway, I think, from the Ringer's exhaustive superhero list that we talked about on Monday is that they have a villain problem. Yeah. So I, as much as I do want to, I do want to make jokes about Steppenwolf, the CGI Viking <laughs> god voiced by Kieran Hines. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? I don't know. I mean, you could not make these movies. <laughs> you could go ahead and do that. But you know what? Actually, so yeah, people go see it this weekend or they won't. Guess which category I'm in. But one thing that I'm kind of impressed by is the just the the press jujitsu happening right now where as a culture we have found a way we've agreed to find a way to just mercilessly shit on this movie yes. justice league and yet somehow delicately perhaps with a golden lasso of truth extricate gal Gadot. by the way it's pronounced gal Gadot. i read that, that was Ka- great job katie, katie weaver's, weaver's excellent gq cover story they did a, a great segment on her on jam session this I, week but she has been saved from this uh, that happens you know, it's that just happens. impressive when yeah. we all agree to do that. We take the jaws of cultural life and we extract someone worthy from an altogether unworthy enterprise. Your uh, acute reading <laughs> of the way things work mm. and the way the media works is appropriate Thank you. for this podcast That's today. Why so I'm here. Joe Hagan uh, came by today to talk to us about his Jan Wenard biography. And as interesting as the book is, it's salacious, it's it's uh it spans decades. It's exhaustive. You can read it as almost as a soap opera, or you can read it as the rise and fall of the baby boomer generation. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's also a very interesting creation myth around the book itself, which we get into, which is essentially that this began as Jan Wenner orchestrating his own legacy. You know, if Jan asking yeah. Joe uh, to write his biography, they start getting into what will and won't be included. Joe talks at length about this, and it was a fascinating part of our discussion. But uh, it's interesting to get into, you know, no longer does Jan, well, Jan Winter no longer a fan, it seems like. Yeah, and so it was a, it was not authorized, but in some way official, encouraged. Like he, Jan, as, he, as Joe says, opened the kimono, but then also basically gave him his Rolodex and said, you know, Bruce will talk to you, Mick will talk to you, Keith will talk to you. And then it was very surprising what a lot of these people said. Um, 
Joe. It was also surprising when we found out Bruce Mick and Keith were just some guys that were hanging out at an Irish bar on 56th Street. <laughs> I think Desmond's in Murray Hill was <laughs> yeah, actually right. a place where he sourced much of this. Um, it's a really fascinating thing. And so we came at this from, you know, we have a very particular um, angle on this because while Rolling Stone was formative in some ways, I would say, to our experience, when we, do you mind that I'm using the royal we here? Um, when we both became not together because we didn't meet till later, but we both became really obsessed with with magazines and with, with music, but and with music journalism where those two things met. Rolling Stone was just this behemoth. Rolling Stone was the establishment. Rolling Stone was the official word of rock and roll, good and bad. Yeah, um, I, would, I would say that for probably for both of us, that Rolling Stone was the script that we deviated from. That's very well put. Yeah. I mean, it's spin, like you have to have the baseline of uh-huh. information and the and you have to have the canon that you're reacting against. Yeah, yeah you don't have to. But the punk, canon left punk had to rebel against something. Yeah, and, rap. It was like mm-hmm. Rolling Stone ignoring rap for as long as it did gave mm-hmm. rap that much more of a chip on its shoulder to some extent. But I still gave it because, you know, when you are young and definitely in a pre-internet world, there were arbiters of things. And so, you know, when I discovered Spin in the late 80s, I was like, oh, this is very cool, but it also feels fringy and fly-by-night, and these opinions are shocking and exciting. But in Rolling Stone, it was official. As you say, as we said to Joe, like, when Rolling Stone and News & Notes said... Um, REM was in the studio. Well, there was a picture of them in the studio and then they would put them on the cover and then they would give Automatic for the People five stars. And I was like, oh my God, this album is a classic because they said it was because they would never, this wouldn't be serious. To me, the exciting thing about this book, which I'm enjoying very much and you'll hear this in our conversation, is the way that Joe didn't just do a biography of Jan Wenner. He drilled down and attacked, not in a violent way, but in a really um, journalistic way, the very notion of there being a canon, of there being an establishment. Why did I receive this wisdom that these five stars from a magazine meant something Mm -hmm. important both to me and to the larger culture? And that's what's kind of interesting about it, especially as the era of giants of publishing, of giants of rock is drawing to a close. I think when I immediately think of music biographies, I think of them as acts of love, as acts of fandom, as acts Mm -hmm. of trying to memorialize or, or, you know, Put down in stone the hey, geographies. I get to say yeah, it again. Yeah, yeah. Uh, this is not that. There's a lot of really cool stuff in it, but mm-hmm. even talking to Joe, I felt like I was in the presence of a very pugnacious reporter, mm-hmm. you know, and not someone who was like, "It's important to me to interrogate myths." It was like it was important for him to get to the bottom of the stories that he was talking about, and that's it. It gives the book a different feel than some other biographies that you might read that are a little bit more about like how this. Mm-hmm person, how this man or woman became a god for a while. And I also say, if this isn't too grandiose, it's a really interesting moment for this book and for this conversation because we do seem to be living in a in an era where the perceived wisdom and the accepted stories are just crumbling. Because in a very small way, when we were working in magazines, there was the opinion of Rolling Stone that we shared you know, good and bad, good people worked there, friends worked there, didn't. But we kind of, wink, wink, we knew Jan had his thumb on the scale. Or they didn't really believe, the writers didn't really stand behind this thing. And frankly, magazines we worked for too. But yet we agreed to maintain this fiction because it had always been that way, right? That 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 um, maybe something was disingenuous or maybe something wasn't on the up and up. Um, we are living in an era where all of that is crumbling. 
in very large ways. And so it's a particularly, it's a book that is particularly suited to its time. Yeah. Um, and Joe talks about that, about, about sort of writing into the narrative and writing into this idea. And he says he couldn't help but draw com- comparisons between Jan and, and Trump, not in, 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 in the way in which politics, they were but, yeah. acts, like their careers are in and of themselves acts of narcissism. So let's get to this conversation with Joe Hagan, his book, Sticky Fingers, the biography of Steppenwolf. Sorry, guys. <laughs> we'll be back on Monday to talk about Justice League and other stuff. We'll take some listener questions. Until then, have a great weekend and enjoy this conversation with Joe Hagan. We are very excited to be joined now by the author of Sticky Fingers, The Life and Times of Jan Wenner and Rolling Stone magazine, out now in hardcover from which press? Knopf. Knopf, one of my favorite words to say out loud. <laughs> yes. Joe Hagen, Just welcome. found out I've been mispronouncing that. It's Knopf, man. There's a lot of letters that shouldn't be next to each other. And yet, this <laughs> sounds so sweet. Uh, Joe, welcome to the show. Welcome thanks. to LA. Yeah, thanks for Thank joining you us. Thank you very man. much. I love it here. We uh, Congratulations on this book. Thanks. Um, it is a terrific read and a terrific work of just journalism um, over covering an enormous amount of time and some pretty contentious figures. Yes. Thank you. We're going to get into some details about the book and about your process writing it. I, I have to confess I'm about halfway through the book, and I, I want a spoiler here, and I want to begin <laughs> with this. Yeah. I just want you to give me a ballpark of how, what percentage of the remaining 150, 200 pages that I have left in the book, mm-hmm. how much of that is devoted to Rolling Stone's five-star review of Goddess in the Doorway, the Mick Jagger solo album. <laughs> you know, album. it's funny. Um, I, didn't, it, I didn't mention it in the book, which is probably like a... Um, My mind is blown! Yeah, I know. Wow. I'm in this paperback, I may have to put in a, um, a footnote. Uh, but the truth is, by the time you reach this that period... Yeah. It's so uh, much of a foregone conclusion how this kind of relationship has it's shaped going, up yeah. that it's almost beside the point. It would just be gilding <laughs> the lily at this point. It, right. What's funny about it is, is it was a controversy at the time. Yes. But what, now, what, what year was that? I, I, uh, gosh, it was um, in the 2000s. Yeah, early 2000s. So for people who don't know, early 2000s, Mick Jagger releases his third or fourth solo album. It is exactly as good as a third or fourth Mick Jagger solo <laughs> album would be, except in the opinion of one low-profile Rolling Stone record reviewer named... Jan Wenner, who bestowed a classic rating on it. Yes. And at the time, this was a big shocking thing. Yeah. What I mean, what people in, didn't know is that this had been going on for ages, that this sort of, uh, you know, they were personal friends. Right. Right. And uh, Not mentioned in the review. Not mentioned at all <laughs> in the review. Um, with this, Jan had a history of this, you know. Um, and in addition to that, you know, he had done a gigantic interview with Mick Jagger in 1995, you know, as in, as he had with many of his favorite artists, who was able to edit it himself. Yeah. So you know, this was if you were in the upper echelon in Jan's social world, this was you got this treatment. You know, it's I, I imagine you figured this out now in, in just talking to people about the book that 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 anecdote has an outsized uh, presence in the stories of people who used to work in the music industry yeah. or yeah. like yeah. in music journalism. That was always the thing we'd point to, but the, obviously yeah. there was many there are many more things. I to think point that was to. one of the earlier things we've talked about in our friendship was that review. And I, I remember it also said a lot about, I was sort of, I think my approach to it was sort of like, well, isn't that really that surprising? And the, and, and the magazine's called Rolling Stone. Did you think that he was going to roast this movie? Chris also just suggested we didn't actually speak for the first five years of our friendship because <laughs> that album came out in 2001. That's but, true. Uh, that's true. But Jan and Mick had sort of a, it's a, it's a, their relationship is central to the book and their re- the relationship that starts in the beginning when Jan is kind of skirting copyright infringement on yes. the band's name. Can you talk a little bit about the sort of role that Mick has played in this guy's life? Well, I sort of think of it as they were, beca- by virtue of the name, 
and the kind of legal tension there at the start. They were and, – and Rolling Stone's success mm-hmm. quickly yeah. was successful. Mm-hmm. It put them into like a shotgun marriage uh, that in which the name was both the uh, – could be the virtue of their relationship mm-hmm. and sometimes the not virtue of the relationship. And so sometimes Mick Jagger's going to do very well. He's going to be on a cover of a magazine mm-hmm. with his band's name virtually on it, and that's good for him. On the other hand, Jan might uh, – have, have Truman Capote follow him around on tour and produce mm-hmm. something really horrible that makes embarrasses Mick Jagger, right. and he would be embarrassed and be like, why did I do that? You well, know? that tension, and um, maybe we can circle back to just how this story was, I mean, how you, you, you worked on this for many years, but it, but Jan gave you permission, right? That's right. He, he, mm-hmm. he gave you... He, he asked me to write it. He, he, he lifted the skirt, so you will. <laughs> Open the kimono, as they say. Oh, that's even better. Um, <laughs> yeah. But that central tension um, is fascinating to me, because as part of this, and stop me if I'm wrong, he basically said... I want you to write this book. You can have access to my life story, but mm-hmm. also I'm going to tell my Rolodex, which is an unrivaled Rolodex, to yes. talk to you. Sure. Um, I find this fascinating because that central tension, and Chris and I both experienced this when we were writing about music, between the journalist and the musician, um, maybe this is true in all parts of journalism, but particularly um, the musician gets, certainly gets fame and the mm-hmm. adulation and the money and the, the magazine covers, but never gets the last word. Right. This seems to me, and this is maybe the cause of some of the tension that came later after publication. These guys could talk now, and yeah, they could right. talk about Jan, yeah. and they've ne- And I don't know if that occurred to him that they could finally talk about him. Absolutely, that is definitely something that it was eye-opening to me. Mm-hmm. And it's not; it's both that we're at the end of the uh, of the arc of the rock and roll story here. They're yeah. all in their seventies, yeah. and seventy-year-olds. I I learned. <laughs> uh, they're at the point where they don't care anymore. You know what I mean? And if they gonna, ever did, yeah. Yeah, if they ever did. But in the past, it was um, in their benefit not to go around complaining about this. You know, I have future records to sell, <laughs> sell future covers to be on. And so they were at a point that were like, okay, I'm going to tell you what my story is. And that was especially kind of shocking to me when I interviewed Paul McCartney, who I remember going in. This was really maybe close to the beginning of the process, thinking nothing's going to come out of this. This will mm-hmm. be totally canned stories and a lot of. Uh, and hot this was air. in person. Tell, it tell, was in person. I, w- I went to England, took a train. Um, uh, to, there was a station called Rye. It was uh, near the Channel. I went out to his studio. He had an office. It was amazing. Can I just say also, what yeah. is that like for you? Because you're on a, you're flying across the ocean. Yeah. You're going to London. And in the back of your mind, do you just have it loaded? If someone asks you what you're doing, you're going to say, "I'm going to meet a Beatle." Like, yeah. is it? Is it? Is it, what does that even? Well, feel like? I definitely felt it. You know, as a yeah. person who's just an incredible, obviously, fan of just, uh, you know, like everybody else in the world. Yeah. Um, and I was doing other interviews while I was there, but with people you wouldn't have known about or not as famous. So when I was going out there, I was thinking to myself, "Well, if nothing comes out of this, I'll have met Paul McCartney." Yeah. And what the hell? Let's go. Yeah. You know, so I went. Um, and, uh, so I was surprised to learn that he had a lot to unload, that he had had a kind of like years long tension and resentment of Jan and Rolling Stone. What was the moment that you realized that the interview was going in a different direction than you had expected? I think, um, well, what happened was, uh, in the book, I don't know if you've gotten this far, but there's a, um, there was a Polaroid that had been sent to Jan anonymously, mm-hmm. care of Johan Wiener, <laughs> that I found in Jan's archive, and it was a... It was from 1974, and it had Paul and John together in it, uh, kind of cavorting with Keith Moon and Linda McCartney in some kind of patio scenario. And underneath the white space on the Polaroid, it said, how do you sleep, question mark, question mark, question mark, oh, yeah. which is an, uh, an allusion to the 
Lennon song that was mm-hmm. uh, hitting McCartney. Mm-hmm. And so I pulled this out, and then lots of things began to flow with he told Had me Had he seen that image in a while? He he knew exactly what it was. And May Pang, sure. I've learned since, uh, published a book of other Polaroids from this same period. Mm-hmm. Because what had happened, as you learn in the book, and Paul told me, which was that uh, Yoko Ono had come to him and said, uh, you know, John and I are broken up. He's out in L.A. going crazy. It's the Nielsen era. Yeah, it was yeah. the Lost Weekend yeah. uh, era. Can, she actually asked Paul to go act as an emissary and tell him that she would take him back. And so he goes to L.A. with Linda, and this whole scenario unfolds in which he sees Lennon. Now, the reason this was significant is it sort of portended uh, you know, John Lennon going back to New York mm-hmm. and living in the Dakota. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, but it also was sort of a, a, a period where they were going to repair their relationship a little bit after the breakup of the Beatles. Mm-hmm. And Rolling Stone had been really in the middle of the Beatles' breakup. Yeah. In the John Lennon interview of 71, which is the epic interview of really the biggest rock and roll interview Jan ever did yeah. by any you know, measure. And uh, that was a very painful interview for Paul. It had sort of, it was putting salt in the wound mm-hmm. about what the breakup. And, you know, he... Paul recognized correctly that Jan and Rolling Stone were partisans for John Lennon mm-hmm. in this whole scenario. And, but you would think, okay, maybe that was an isolated period. But yeah. this went on for the rest of the history of Rolling Stone in Paul's mind. That Lennon, wow. that Rolling Stone and Jan, especially after he died, had turned John, had gone and worked hand in glove with Yoko because they became social friends, Jan and Yoko, mm-hmm. uh, to make John Lennon the only Beatle it mattered. The, bro- right. the, the true genius. Yeah. The true genius. And in fact, Paul says in the in my interview in the in the book, uh, you know, I just booked the studio. You know, <laughs> that's 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 what it seemed like. And he, and this went on to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame too. That became another issue, as you'll read later. Right, which Gian is the gatekeeper, self appointed gatekeeper. That's right. Of, essentially, that's right. And Paul felt like he got uh, screwed over by Jan and the and then the, his own induction. And so it's a real. Um, you know, listen, I was thinking. Obviously, these things all happen in the 60s. Clearly, they're over it. They're not going to they're be. No, they never get over it. They're, yeah. these, they're always sensitive flowers. So they're yeah, artists, Sensitive right? flowers, exactly. We'll have more from Joe Hagan in just a minute, but first, a word from our sponsors. Today's episode was brought to you by Zelle. Zelle is a new way to send money to your friends and family from your banking app. Cash is easy to lose, and checks take a while to clear. But with Zelle, once you're enrolled, the money moves right between bank accounts and typically arrives in minutes. Pay your share of the cost of dad's gift... Request half the cost of the Christmas tree you bought with your roommate. Or pay your personal trainer that you hired after Thanksgiving with ease, all thanks to Zelle. It's so easy to use and works with almost anyone with a bank account in the U.S. And don't worry, Zelle is safe and backed by major banks, which means you can send money confidently. Just go to ZellePay.com to learn more. That's Z-E-L-L-E-P-A-Y.com. Zelle, this is how money moves. Today's episode of The Watch is also brought to you by Stitch Fix. Unless you're somewhere south of the equator, sweater weather is officially here, and it doesn't involve going shopping. Instead, you can get cool, cold-weather clothes from the style experts at Stitch Fix. They have taken everything you don't like about shopping for clothes, the crowded malls, the pushy salespeople, the endless online options, and they've replaced them with one simple website that does all the work for you. Just go to stitchfix.com and answer some basic questions about your sizes, your favorite styles, and your budget. Your personal stylist will take it from there, handpicking five pieces based on your preferences, all for a small styling fee of just 20 bucks. And if you keep any item in your fix, the 20 bucks gets applied as credit. The five items are delivered to your home, you try them on, and you only pay for what you keep. 
Just send back anything you don't want. Shipping is free both ways, and so are exchanges. Best of all, there is no subscription required and no club to join. Get started now at stitchfix.com watch, and you'll also get 25% off when you keep all five items in your box. That's stitchfix.com watch to get started today. Stitchfix.com watch. And now back to our conversation with Joe Hagan. You know, one of the things that's sort of interesting about music journalism, and I, I don't know whether Jan is the chicken or the egg here, is this idea that, you know, in other forms of journalism, you maybe you you're you have a predetermined adversarial relationship with your subject. Let's say you're covering crime, let's say you're covering right. politics. Right. Your job is to hold those people's feet to the fire. Mm-hmm. But music journalism, at least the way that we we grew up with it was an act of kind of intellectual fandom. You know That's what I mean? Right. You, you, you already wanted to love these things because music was so important to you in your life. Yes. I was curious about whether you viewed Jan through that lens. Oh, and, absolutely. And well, whether that was, and what that means for a journalistic enterprise mm-hmm, that you right. oversee. Well, there's, it's, it's multidimensional here. On the one hand, you have artists that Jan personally loved. Sure. And he gave them the fan treatment, you know, most often. Um, and then there were artists that he didn't love or he just sort of uh, decided it's okay, let it rip, embarrass that guy if we have to. Like right. in Jackson Brown is in the book saying he was in, couldn't believe how like violated he felt after they did his first cover story, right? Yeah. So clearly there was a different thing going on there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then there was the critics and the critics were allowed to be free generally. You know, occasionally Jan would come in there and noodle around in the in, in, <laughs> in, half star. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, in the late yeah. '60s, especially. Uh, but the and there was a big conflict. The critics wanted more autonomy and you know Chinese wall or whatever. And so uh, he, um, but the critics became a big thorn in his side over time. Yeah, and especially in the mid '70s, he was just uh, he got so uh, upset about how critical they were of his favorite groups, including the Stones and Mm -hmm. the late Dylan, late 70s Dylan, that he came out of the woodwork to criticize them in his own magazine. He wrote, and he wrote these incredibly glowing essays about the Stones and Christian era Dylan saying that these were, and you know, slow train coming. It's a good record. But, uh, you know, (laughs) that whole period's getting like a reevaluation. He's got a bootleg series coming out. Yeah, exactly. And so, so, you know, he had a real, it was a balancing act for him. It's interesting to follow up on, on on Chris's point, which I totally agree with, that the business of, of writing about rock, rock and roll is often, you know, trying to sort of professionalize the fandom. There's also an aspect of just trying to professionalize all of it and create gods. Yes. Um, mm-hmm. When you add Jan Wenner and Rolling Stone into it, it's also about creating gods and creating a business plan and creating Absolutely. Um, an industry that you can then be the captain of and the, and have the, the gatekeeper of. That's right. And in, just in terms of our personal history with it, I think Chris would agree too, like becoming a music fan... Um, and becoming aware of music, like in the 80s, Rolling Stone was just the establishment. Not even in the bad way. It just existed. It was voice on high. It was a benchmark. These things mattered. These things didn't. And that was the received wisdom that then you could play with and learn more about or or, or poke holes in. What's really essential to me as a reader of your book is realizing, truly realizing and seeing it happen, how it was always created. How how, um, everything about Jan from the beginning understood uh, art and commerce equally, maybe even not equally, if, if we're being honest about it. And, and one of the sort of initial revelations for me when I wrote a book proposal for the book, it was the John Lennon stuff, because that was I decided, let me go into an archive and see what's in there about John Lennon. And it turned out there was this whole story, mm-hmm. that, which I tell in the book about his sort of, he said, 
Lennon, we were like partners. Mm-hmm. I was a partner with him. I was going to help him say whatever he wanted to say out in the world. And John and Yoko were thinking, we're going to use Rolling Stone as a vehicle to drive our own narrative yeah, separate they, from the Beatles. They were happy to use each other. Exactly. And these, and then and with Mick Jagger, literally partners on a British version of Rolling Stone in which Mick Jagger was half owner. Yeah. I mean, so when, mm-hmm. you, when I started to see these things, I was like, oh, I see what happened here or what was going on. This, These were partnerships. And he built it on a kind of fan magazine model, mm-hmm. even though he had all this genuinely great criticism and sometimes good journalism. He also understood the value of the old kind of like teen beat model yeah. of like being uh, kind of hand in glove with some of the big artists who everybody wanted to read about. Sure. There are a lot of paths into this book for a lot of different types of readers. Um, to you, how do you describe it? Is it a business book? Is it a... Uh, Initially, I thought it was, but I, I think it's a cultural history. Okay. Um, I've thought a lot about this in recent times because I've had to articulate the book for people. You know, when I was writing it, I was just in it. Yeah. And, and, and how many years was the process? Four years. Yeah. And, um, uh, you know, and I basically I closed the book in August. This oh, is how, like, gosh. tight this was. Really? Yeah. Whoa. Yeah. So it was intense and it was very stressful. But um, because I had, like, a fact checker for five months and lawyers, you can imagine all the yeah. process. But um, but the, the um, thing that I came to realize— in the writing of the book that was really a revelation for me. At first I was like, well, I know all these personal soap operas about what's going on in his life with his marriage and his secret sexuality and uh, his private relationships with big rock stars Mm -hmm. and how that happened. And I began to realize when you have a, a magazine like Rolling Stone, which is kind of an expression of the man who invented it, the personal is the historical. Mm-hmm. The more I got into the kind of texture of the soap opera of these relationships between Jan Winter and Annie Leibovitz, Jan Winter and Mick Jagger, John Lennon, the more kind of granular I could get, the more of a cultural history it would be because you'd understand kind of the secret history of the history. Yeah. And especially of a man who invented a history of his own kind of making. I mean, and, um, you know... I'm going to get to a point here that will be of interest to you guys here, sure. which is that, you know, he created a, a big top, essentially. And underneath it were all these rock writers and all these people who had had careers there. Mm-hmm. And they it was sacred to them, a lot of them. Now, some of them got booted out of there and were resentful, as you can see in the, sure. in the book. Yeah. But um, my mandate, I felt like as a journalist, was to go out of that tent. And in a way, I had to kind of drain away some of the nostalgia and some of the reverence that, you know— other writers who were more devoted to Rolling Stone might have had for it, you know? Mm-hmm. And this has been somewhat controversial for people. Yeah. This is what we want to talk about also. Yeah, yeah and I um, – but I have no uh, regrets whatsoever about it because the truth is, is like um, I wanted to tell the true story. And, and in a way, um, while I understand the magic that will set you free of music, uh, nobody – yeah, you know, I'm a huge fan. Yeah, you, you people should know that Joe walked into the studio with a re- a bag with a record in it that yeah. he purchased in a store yes. not moments before. So he's yeah. the real deal. Uh, yeah, I'm into it, and um, and I spent way too much time in there. But um, so you know, uh, but um, the story is about Jan Winter, and he was a culture maker, and he was a businessman, and he was a social climber. And it was his ego and the force of his ego and the force of his appetites that really drove the magazine, no matter what was in it, who was in it, who was writing it. And he knew how to find talent, and he did all these incredible things. Um, But I had to track him. 
I couldn't track everybody else's feelings about it. You know, if you want to read about the writer's point of view, mm-hmm. go read Robert Draper's book, okay, Rolling Stone, The yeah. Uncensored History, mm-hmm. which is even more negative than my book, actually. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, I don't consider my more, book it, negative. Because it's more actually. personal. It's resentful. In a well, way, it's all right? these resentment yeah. and all this resentment. And um, so um, – yeah, you know, your your own reviewer said that it was a feast of sourness. Um, the book, my book, um, <laughs> and uh, I just totally disagree with that. And I think that, um, but I get it. It's like um, it's an emotional response from somebody that wants you to give it more um, kind of romance. Mm-hmm. And uh, but um, if you were me and you had gone through Jan's archive and talked to him for four years. Some of that, you know, the scales would have fallen from your eyes, and that was the story you had to write. Yeah, and uh, that's my. Uh, I, th- I think position. It's, it speaks to you're talking about this big tent. It was also, it meant different things to different people at different points in their lives. Mm-hmm. I remember, um, you know, for us there was definitely a point where the reviews were the most important thing. There was a point in time in the early '90s and in the '80s where it essentially was what the internet became, where the news and notes and the in the studio section yeah. was the only thing you knew about right. you two going new, back in the studio. Or, or, or REM's making a new record. Yeah. And, okay. Know. Now I know. Yeah. yeah you yeah. know, it's like there was no way to get information. And then there was, you know, there are some people who look at it as this paragon of new journalism and the place that. Birth, a, uh, you know, helped promote a certain kind of journalism. And celebrity style. culture too. I remember yeah. the Michael Keaton cover when Batman was coming out, and it's like, oh, this is this covers all potentially all my interests yeah, as right. a twelve year old. Yeah, and sure. then there's that concept. I mean, we used to when Andy and I used to work at Spin, we used to hear things all the time about you know different artists and where in the book they would go, where in the magazine they would go, and are they ready for this, that, or the other section? Are they ready to be in the front of the book? Are they an up and coming mm-hmm. band? Are they ready to have a feature? And Stone's cover was this. It's like this kind of like you were marked if you did it, if you got on the cover, mm-hmm. that was you were a significant contributor mm-hmm. to American popular culture at that point. And I think that's also part of the, the thing that people have to wrap their head around because in some ways what you're doing is you're bringing us back to Jan and you're showing us this well, is the all... Man behind the curtain. Yeah, exactly. And that's what the book is about. It's like the great and powerful Oz, yeah. okay? And how did it op work? Mm-hmm. The thing that really I remember, I struggled with this in the writing of it because I remember getting to the 80s and I was looking through the issues and this you know, instances of really fabulous journalism. There were all kinds of writers that mm-hmm. we all know who were in there. And I would ask Jan, well, tell me about some of the great stories from this period. What were you involved in? What are you proud of? And he could think of a couple, Tom Wolfe, Bonfire of the Vanities, mm-hmm. the, the AIDS coverage, mm-hmm. uh, which is interesting. But I've ne- he was way more animated talking about his private jet than he was about any article that he published. And at first I was very disappointed in this. Mm-hmm. And I thought, Really? I mean, wow, in the details, and there was a couch, and it was a bed, mm-hmm. and, and my friends and I all went on these great journeys, and we were going everywhere, and Fran Leibowitz was there, and all these mm-hmm. crazy things. And at first, I was like, I remember saying to myself, I'm not putting that in the book. <laughs> you know, oh, God, that's disappointing. Yeah. But then I realized, no, 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 that's the point. That's where this was all going, and that's, that's it, it's, then it becomes a story of a generational thing. Oh, you know? totally. I remember well working at Spin when I first got there in, in 99 or in 2000, someone showed me Rolling Stone's ad sales material that went to the companies that were right. advertising in the magazine and the disconnect between what they wanted to be still be known for, the artists that they wanted to cover or, or, or deal with, and then this document, which was basically saying, Bob Dylan is still the only thing that matters. Here's a Jaguar. Yeah. And, and that 
balancing that is very tricky, but that's yeah. what the, the audience and what that generation well, became. Well, that's what the Perception Reality ad campaign was about yep. from the late 80s. He was, yes. na- he was honing in right on that, yeah. saying, listen, we can broach this uh, divide yeah. between your perception of the hippie reader who's stoned, you know, and the yuppie who's got a briefcase exactly. and a sports car. Yeah. And he basically, and he loved that. I mean, he, and it really worked. Yeah. I mean, ad pages went up. Yeah. The, the ad community loved it. They were like, yes. And his circulation had reached this peak. And, but even before all that, the cart was already leading the horse here. <laughs> you know what I mean? By the late seventies, they were already moving towards, we're going to do a, you know, this is for people that probably don't pay attention to print anymore, but there was like to staple the magazine and have mm-hmm. it be glossy and mm-hmm. cover and everything. Mm-hmm. They were moving into, we're going to be a serious yep. magazine on the newsstand and not just like a newspaper like they used to be. And it was all about getting better ads. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's what Jan was really, listen, Jan could do two things at once. He is a kind of, a, he was a kind of brilliant guy who could attend to the business and then people come to him, what stories do you want? Uh, yes, this and not that. You know, mm-hmm. he had that power. But what made him who he was was his uh, social movements, mm-hmm. uh, you know, across this nude tier of like jet setters and rich guys who were going to make build something like the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Mm-hmm. And um, I had to follow that narrative. Let's talk specifically um, about that relationship with Jan, because um, as you said, you you he he opened the kimono. Yes. He said, "Have at it. Yeah. You're the guy." Yeah. Um, and then you, as a good journalist yeah. and a good writer, you wrote a true book, yeah. you know, um, and there has been some discussion that maybe he doesn't love that. Yeah, he hates it. Uh, I, I, I'm of the opinion that he will probably come around and realize the value of it. But, as but, am I. But can you, can you talk about that entire journey from when you met him to sure. the relationship during the book to the relationship right now in yeah, November? Yeah. Well, listen um, – I, I knew him just really casually before any of this book stuff started. I had met him in a cafe in my little village of Tivoli, New York, where I live. He had just bought a big estate up there. And had it, it had just been finished being remodeled and everything. And uh, so I, I meet him in a cafe. I'm on my computer working on something, and I recognized immediately mm-hmm. who he was. And I was like, what's he doing here? <laughs> and I immediately just stood up and went over to him. And I was like, Jan, Wenner, what are you doing around here? And, wow. and he said, whoa. Hello. Okay, yeah, I'm getting this milk and this cappuccino, and uh, he uh, invited me to his house for the, uh, a birthday party that his kid was having. And this uh, is his kid Gus, who I know this took over the his younger, his younger okay. children. Okay, and um, who one of his kids was turning five. So I uh, was wow, this will be interesting. You yeah. know, and you have to go up to the gate and you press the, you press the button. Okay, the gate opens. You go along, winding path, come out onto this fabulous plantation on the Hudson River, and there's this beautiful pool house, and it's like a modernist thing, and it's outrageous. And down at the pool are Annie Leibowitz and her children <laughs> and Jan and his kids wow. and an uh, exotic animal handler for the <laughs> birthday party. And it was just a whole scene that I was just like, wow, okay. I am a gawker. I am gawking at this. This is outrageous. And so – and he was interested because he didn't know anybody around there. Annie Leibowitz had a spread up the road and so he thought – Not exactly a townie. No, he wasn't. He not at all and he never has been and he's never really comes out of the gated fortress, frankly. I mean occasionally. But he, um, you know, wanted to talk to me because I was in the magazine business and I was Mm -hmm. a writer and for whatever else reason, he just wanted to hang out. So after that, we would – meet for coffee and lunch once in a while and chat. And he wanted me to write for him. 
Mm-hmm. And, for Stone. Uh, for Rolling Stone and Men's Journal. Well, Men's Journal, too. And I wrote a piece for Rolling Stone and a piece for Men's Journal for him. And I was working at New York Magazine. And at one point, he wants me to work. He was saying, you should come to Rolling Stone and cover politics because he liked something I did about Karl Rove and stories I was writing about Republicans at the time. And uh, so I was like, I don't know if I want to do that. And I must admit, part of it was that Rolling Stone wasn't where I was. I just, just didn't have the stature that I it once had, mm-hmm. you know, to be frank. Um, I enjoyed some of it, but I was uncomfortable with their kind of left-wing stance in the magazine. I wanted to be at something where I could be more cool mm-hmm. in my writing. And they have Tem- a very— Temperature-wise or temperamentally. Yeah, temperature, they're more temperamentally, yeah, yeah, because yeah. they're very right. forward uh, in the way they— in muscularly uh, kind of democratic and everything, mm-hmm. and that wasn't my reputation, you know. And that's getting too into the weeds. But the but the truth is, so we no, went but magazines out, have personalities, sure, and right? And pers- especially this one, mm-hmm. especially this one. So he took me out to lunch to kind of convince me that I should, could take a contract with them. And then I was sort of hemming and hawing, and he said, "Well, why don't you write my biography?" <laughs> that was his second offer. That's right. And Can I ask when you guys are having coffee and you're just hanging out in Tivoli? Yeah. What, what are you guys talking about? What's small talk with you guys? Uh, that would have been, you know, what was going on in politics? Uh, what's going on in the magazine business? Ad sales are up or down? You know, like mm-hmm. just, you know. Shop talk. Shop talk. Is he asking you questions or are you asking him questions? Both. Yeah. And I would be more like, so tell me about Dylan. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. And, uh, and I asked him one time, uh, you know, are you going to do a memoir? It seems like you should do one because you probably have this fabulous history. And he said, oh, he kind of alluded to the fact that he had had something fall through. Okay. And then I started to kind of poke around on that, and it was all on Wikipedia, like, you know, these two failed attempts to write a book. Yeah. So he asked me to do it. It was in a restaurant, and I was sort of sitting. It was lunch. We had dro- He drove me there in his Porsche, which was uh, kind of exciting. But <laughs> um, And I just was like, well, God, that's amazing, but I really got to think about it. That was a big, mm-hmm. a big thing. And I walked out of there a little stunned, you know. I remember going home and telling my wife, you're not going to believe what he just asked me. Mm-hmm. And so I told Jan, let me think about it. And I called – I believe that week I called Rich Cohen who had um, you know, previously tried and, and it didn't work out mm-hmm. to write one. And he told me his story of what had happened to him. And I kind of drew from that that, uh, you know, um, I have to be careful here. And so I remember uh, the Steve Jobs book had only recently come out, mm-hmm. and I had read it, was reading it, and I was thinking, you know, the only way to write a good book is if Jan can handle negative information. This is the Walter Isaacson book? Yeah. Which yeah. had no negative information, if I remember correctly. No, uh, no. Walter Isaacson's book it just shows Steve Jobs to be the biggest jerk who ever lived. Oh. Yeah. I, I guess I've completely misremembered <laughs> no, that no, book. No, no, And uh, it was like, it is, he is a very unappealing person in right. that book. And uh, because he was an unappealing person. Yeah. Um, but he was iconic, and you could still read the book and enjoy it, because. but you would also be, like, alarmed by what right. a jerk he was. Um but I was thinking, well, I know who Jan is from by reputation. I know this is a bit tricky situation. I told Jan, I said, uh, well, let's see if you can handle some negative information. I said, that's what it's going to take. You're going to be able have to metabolize mm. things that aren't that you don't like. And he said, nah, that's no problem, whatever. Come into the office and throw hardballs. And I was like, fine. And I remember reading Robert Draper's book, mm-hmm. plucking out some choice anecdotes mm-hmm. in there that were tough, and just going into his office. with. And I was just... We started talking about it, and he kind of uh, he be- grew agitated when I would bring up 
mm-hmm. kind of these notorious stories. And uh, he and he said, "Listen, uh, it's, you know that those stories aren't true." Um, but uh, and the other thing is, I'm going to want some control over my sex life. Mm. And I said, "Okay, this is not going in the direction I, that it should be going." And I the next day I wrote him a letter and I said, "No." I said, "If you want somebody to write an authorized biography, you should find that person. I'm yeah. sure it'll be a great book, but that's not the book I'm going to write." I said, "I can only do this as an independent book." And thus began a month-long series of talks with him over coffee in which he pushed and wanted me to do it. And I kept saying, only if you let go on this kind of like sex thing. So while you're having these conversations with him and he is at once enticing you to do this, but at the same time giving you parameters about Mm -hmm. what do you think is going through his head in terms of – I mean – if he doesn't want these kinds of things in the book, why keep going after you? I guess is the thing that I just don't. Well, here's here's how his mind works. Now that I know, <laughs> there was a 50 year anniversary coming up the road, uh-huh. and he wanted to have this treatment. The Steve Jobs book was hovering in the background as a thing. I want to think like that. Mm-hmm. The big iconic tone yeah. about my life, and also I had just interviewed Hillary Clinton. And I think he liked that I, you know, was worthy of her getting this exclusive interview with her, and all these things were sort of commingling to make me mm-hmm. seem like I could, and I was near him, mm-hmm. and so he thought his proximity would help. Yeah, his he's got a reputation in the business; he'll be the guy that can do this. But I just need this little bit of control, and I just said, "You can't have it, or you can't have me." I just know I'm not going to do that. Mm-hmm. And then we had this series of things where I'd be asking him, "Well, why?" What is the thing? Because obviously you're paranoid as a journalist. What are you afraid of? Yeah, what, what is the thing that you're hiding? And I, at first I thought, oh, there were rumors that he had had uh, you know, affairs with uh, actors and, mm-hmm. and uh, different people. And so I started asking him, did you have an affair with this person? Is, is this what you're worried about? No, 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 it's none of that. Well, uh, so eventually we got to the point where I said, listen, he said, write it down what you need. Have a lawyer draw up a thing, put it in what you want, wow. and we'll see if we can get there. And I wrote it up. I said, it's an independent book. You can't read the manuscript, and I have to have carte blanche. And he said, well, he pushed back on the sex thing. And I finally said, okay, anything that is related to Rolling Stone or any of your magazines, if I can connect anything you did Mm -hmm. to the magazine, I have to be able to write about it. And he said yes. And when you think about it, even this latest allegation that's out there about him, about the young man who's um, claiming that Jan – uh, offered him a contract for sex. Right, that would have been underneath. That would have fallen under the, mm-hmm. uh, you know, under the contractual thing. Yeah. And the other thing I asked him said was, uh, anything you say on the record is on the record, no matter what it is, even if it's about this stuff. Mm-hmm. And that was a pretty big. Uh, that gave me a lot of mm-hmm. room because mm-hmm. he's somebody that you know, he's he'll talk. He's a raconteur. He he will talk yeah, yeah. eventually, and so anyway, this is how it all began. You know, and it was sort of like high risk. There was, and it was a lot of mm-hmm. intense t- intensity there. Once we got through the contract, we relaxed. We we're like, now let's just do this, mm-hmm. right? And I felt like I, got, I have the freedom to write the book I need to write. And uh, and he just was really excited to unload all the stories and uh, his version of the story, <laughs> right? And you got the other versions too in there. And so, at what point this summer did? Did he get his hands on it? And at what point did I sent it to him after Labor Day? 
knowing it was being published on what I, day? Yeah, yeah, on October 27th. Right. Or I think 24th. And I, I said uh, to him, well, what, I, what happened was I was told by the publisher, it's at the printing plant. So it, it, the ship has sailed. It, the ship has sailed. Yeah. And that's when I sent it. And at first I told him, I'll send you the first copy of the printing press. But then I thought, you know what? I'm going to give him some time to digest this because it, I knew it would, some of it would be hard for him. Yeah. And, uh, and he was already upset, actually, about the title. The title was uh, revealed in the spring mm-hmm. of last year, and he was really upset about it. And, uh, but what did he think it should be called? Huh? What did he think it should American be called? American Lion. Jan yeah. Wenner in his at Times. Yeah. And uh, which I was like, I don't, you know, I'm sorry. I mean, and then he wanted it to be like a Rolling Stone. And he, at one point he said, that's really all you can call it. Really. So there's this thing here we alluded to before you told us the, the details of it, which is that this guy, there's this binary, right, where he has the creative side of him and yes. then there's the business side of him. And they are, and that is what fueled him and what created the magazine and his sure. success. But it's also what has undone him at many stages of his sure. career. And it does seem to be playing out maybe one last time with Gusto with his relationship with you in the book because what you have written is an exemplar of the field. I mean, you've written not just a great book to read but a document of the times with a clear point of view and real journalism, the sort of things that he, when he's wearing a certain hat or wearing a certain suit, champions. Exactly. And so one would think... Yeah, but that's hard. Imagine reading a 540-page book about yourself in which 250-odd people are telling everything about you. Oh, right. And it's going to be, you know, a kind of a historical colonoscopy, so to speak. And it's like he – that's hard for him. And at the stage he's at, it's hard for him because, you know, one of the things that, you know, we've all noticed in the last 10 to 20 years is Rolling Stone was being propped up basically by all these old rock stars. Yeah. Okay? And by Us Weekly. <laughs> and by Us Weekly, yeah. exactly. The other, the other things. And um, I think that Jan – and maybe – and not just Jan – people that were his allies, mm-hmm. fr- these hip capitalists of a certain generation, mm-hmm. they were maybe the last to know that it was over. Mm-hmm. And in a way, I think, Jan, if you've seen the HBO documentary about Rolling Not Stone, yet. well, it's very soft and celebratory, and God bless him, do it. I w- and Jan's the executive producer of it. It's his vision of, <laughs> yeah. of, of history. But at some point, I'm writing the book, and it's in the 2016-2017 period, and I have to – it almost was an, – it was an opportunity, actually, to look back on it and strip away some of the nostalgia for it because, look, it had not um, saved us all. You can't immunize yeah. yourself uh, from history because of how great the Rolling Stones are. There's going to be a lot of stories. I mean, we, we'll look back, assuming we're all still alive uh, in yeah. 10 years, and we'll look back at this time. And I don't know if you could have known when you were writing, but this is, you think about the fall of the boomers. You think about the end of Hillary, the end of Harvey, the end yes. of Jan, these people who wielded this kind of left center political social might, and this yes. kind of like economic uh, cachet that they had. And the idea that this book comes out right at the same time is just fascinating. Well, know? it was – and I have been uh, – and maybe it was because I was writing it in real time with along with these things that were happening. Yeah. I didn't really realize it at the time. I just remember thinking the, this, this book came organic from the material. Mm-hmm. I mean if you read some of these anecdotes, if you're kind of shocked and surprised and alarmed by them, well, so was I. Mm-hmm. I was like this is – and I was like this is an incredible story. I got to write it this way. And and some of so much of it was like folly, 
you know? Yeah. The, the folly yeah. of the drug abuse and the kind of sexual ambiguity and confusion and the messiness and the backroom deals and all this stuff. And I thought this, uh, you know, Jan probably won't like it because some of it is kind of irreverent, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? On its face. Because mm-hmm. well, the, the, the enduring story of the baby boomers in the 60s is that everything they did mattered. That That's it was right. all in process and of, or a service to. And control of the, right. the voice Yes, it was say, messy. Yes, yeah. we broke some hearts or we abused things and we lost some people along the way. But there is beauth. And, there's, there's, beauth. Yeah. there's truth and beauty here. Yeah, that's good. And, and that's exactly what I was trying to say about the immunity is like they felt immunized. Right. Jan felt immunized against the kind of uh, warts and all version of the history because he still believed he had the force field of their, of their success. He controlled you know? how people thought of it. So just in, in, in conclusion, you said something at the very beginning just as a, as a side comment that I thought was really interesting, which was you said that now that we're at the end of the rock and roll era, yeah. and we talk a lot just as fans <laughs> and as former music journalists that rock music is not central to the culture anymore, no, no, matter, how much, for a long time. no matter how much you pretend that it could be. Um, we are all in different ways veterans of a time when magazines were central to the culture in a way. And um, one of the reasons that I stopped, and I bet Chris would say the same, I had to get out of writing about music for magazines is I felt like I was at the the Venn diagram of a death spiral of two industries. Boy, you said it. Um, So from your experience both before, during, and after this book, but also writing the book, being around Jan, what what big picture thoughts do you have about this? This the world that we grew up in, mm-hmm. magazines matter a certain way. These magazines matter. These power brokers from Jan to Graydon Carter to sure. whomever else matter. Um, rock and roll matters. The boomer myth matters. Yeah. Where are we? Well, at the end of the book, and you're going to get there. I am going to get there I, now that I, although I'm still upset about the goddess in the doorway. Stuff. I understand. Well, <laughs> wait for the paperback. I'll put it in as a, as a uh, note. Right. But I'm, at the end, I, I address this directly. Mm-hmm. And it's one of the reasons Jan is upset about the book. But it's proof he finished it. Uh, it's, well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, it's also, I tee it up a little bit at the beginning, okay. which is that, you know, um, I talk about how the thread was lost mm-hmm. in this narrative that began in 1967. Mm-hmm. And what, over time, you know, the, the emergence of Trump, who is a figure of the celebrity culture. In the same age as Jan, right? Exact same age as Jan, in a kind of similar personality profile. I don't want to take that too far, but they're both narcissistic individuals. And I sort of maintain at the end that one of the things that happened is, you know, I say that Jan is a a man of the me decade of the 70s, as Tom Wolfe called it. Mm -hmm. And that was followed by a series of me decades. (laughs) And uh, eventually you get the me president. Mm -hmm. And what happened was the uh, culture that Jan was a part of the celebrity culture, the world of fame and money and power that kind of built up from this stuff, yeah. it uncoupled from ideas. It decoupled from what they originally were talking about in all these songs that you love, mm-hmm. you know? And eventually, uh, you know, the fame culture knocks through to the last door. And now there's a pure reality television star in the White House mm-hmm. who doesn't really have any kind of um, coherent worldview other than him. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't, in good conscience, finish this book without connecting yeah. what I had seen for the last 500 pages mm-hmm. and what was happening here. I mean, he did publish Us Weekly. I mean, he's called my book Tawdry. The man published Us Weekly, yeah. for God's sakes. I mean, it was like, you know, this was Tawdry stuff, some of this stuff, and the rock and roll was sex, drugs, and rock and roll. He, he put Britney Spears on the cover with with dolls. I mean, he, <laughs> yeah. he, he knows what he was doing. He knows what he's doing. I yeah. mean, he, but he 
at this stage in his life, and he's not alone in this, all these guys want to look back and see it as a more vaunted thing. I mean, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame was really an expression of Jan's kind of idea that rock and roll could be kind of cooled down and sculpted into institution mm-hmm. of uh, that would be next to the Lincoln Center, right? But in a way, uh, that's not um, – and my job was to heat it back up mm-hmm. and show – um, how kind of uh, messy it was and, so, and narcissistic uh, in many ways. Like, and these were egos of epic proportions, these people. And there was a kind of preening and, a, and then self-regard that that you could sign on for because you bl- loved the music, mm-hmm. you know? Or because you could admit that that's part of rock and roll, peacocking and yes. being a star. But there was also that well, you have to be earnest. You can't actually want fame or adulation right. or drugs just for pleasure's sake. No, right, it had right. to have a purpose. And then we right. and the drugs were and... part of the purpose at the mm-hmm. beginning. You know, they right. thought of drugs as part of the creative um, source. I think that's... I just have to ask, the last communication between the two of you? Uh, well, it, some emails when I told him I was sending him the book. And he's yeah. like, great. And you know, he was very nervous about getting yeah. it. We spoke on the phone the day before his triple bypass operation uh, last June. Mm-hmm. And he... He was some, in a somewhat confessional mood because it seemed like you know it was yeah. a real sort of um, mortality moment for him. And he told me about Bruce Springsteen coming by his hospital bed <laughs> and giving him a mixtape for the uh, surgeon to listen to. <laughs> Jesus. Like an actual cassette? Yeah, I don't know what if it was a cassette or Man. some kind of mix of thumb drive or something. Dr. Knows. Meredith Gray still got a cassette player <laughs> when she's doing that. You get one when you're doing Jan Winter's surgery. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But, um, but since publication? Since publication, nothing. And, I, and to something you said— um, I do predict and hope uh, that he'll, when all this emotionality cools down, he sold Rolling Stone, he's in a new phase mm-hmm. thing. You know, he feels vulnerable right now. I get it, you know, um, that he will come to see that the book, my devotion to the truthful story and to making it great, as great as I could, was my homage to him. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's hard for him to feel that way right now. Well, I, I, I hope he comes around, but in the meantime... People should check out this book. It is a terrific read, whether you are a fan of the music, whether you want to mock the music, whether you are a fan of the, a fan of the culture, history, uh, celebrity. It's really all there. It's a terrific book. Um, Sticky Fingers by our guest, Joe Hagan. Thanks Thank so much for coming by, man. Thank you. Thanks a lot. I appreciate it. Today's episode of The Watch was brought to you by Stitch Fix Men. Unless you're somewhere south of the equator, sweater weather is officially here. Time to pull out the long sleeve shirts, sweaters, and jackets. But if last year's layers are feeling tired, here's an easy way to give your closet a wake-up call. And it doesn't involve going shopping. Instead, you can get cool, cold-weather clothes from the style experts at Stitch Fix. They've taken everything you don't like about shopping for clothes, the crowded malls, the pushy salespeople, the endless online options, and they've replaced them with one simple website that does all the work for you. Just go to stitchfix.com and answer some basic questions about your size, your favorite styles, and your budget. Your personal stylist will take it from there, handpicking five pieces based on your preferences. All for a small styling fee of 20 bucks, and if you keep any item in your fix, the 20 bucks gets applied as credit. The five items are delivered to your home, you try them on, and you only pay for what you keep. Just send back anything you don't want. Shipping is free both ways, and so are exchanges, and best of all, 
There is no subscription required or no club to join. Get your fix monthly, quarterly, or whenever you want, so long as you get it. I promise you'll be hooked. Get started now at stitchfix.com slash watch, and you'll also get 25% off when you keep all five items in your box. That's stitchfix.com slash watch to get started today. Stitchfix.com slash watch. Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by Zelle. Cash is easy to lose, and checks take a while to clear. Thankfully, there's Zelle, a new way to send money to your friends and family from your banking app. Once you've enrolled, the money moves right between almost any U.S. bank accounts and typically arrives in minutes. Plus, it's backed by major banks, which means you can send money confidently. Just go to zellepay.com, Z-E-L-L-E-P-A-Y.com to learn more. Zelle, this is how money moves. <laughs> 